Hey y'all, I'm Sandra Pham. And I'm Min Vu. Welcome to episode four. Well, you know, it's August. It's a big month. Yeah, it's Pride Month here in Austin. We do our Pride Parade two months later, June, July, August. Yeah, two months later. And, you know, I think it's an interesting thing when I think about Pride Month. I've only actually been to two Pride Parades, the one in Austin. And then I was able to go to one in Mexico City a couple years ago, too. And that was amazing but the last you know this is this year is the first pride parade since lockdown so it's been two years since they've had a pride parade and the last time that I went I was actually felt fortunate enough to be able to bring my parents and that was a really lucky and fulfilling experience because I know that's not an opportunity that a lot of folks have in the LGBTQ community so I feel really fortunate that I'm in a place with my parents that they were open and willing to go they like wore bright colors but like not like rainbow color they like didn't have it's like it was like a bright blue I'll like post a picture or something but it, it was very sweet uh and I think it was the first time that they recognized to just the citywide support from a bunch of different organizations for the LGBTQ community in Austin and I think that gave them a sense of security, even if I think about it in terms of my safety and what it means for my identity. Because I feel like when I came out, a lot of it, you know, they, it was a rough road when I came out to my parents. It wasn't, it wasn't straight to let's go to a pride parade. Like it took years mm-hmm. for us to get to where we were at. But I think a lot of it was rooted in my safety and what it meant for my future. Um Yeah, I mean, I think that is a huge deal. I mean, you touched on it's, I'm sure a lot of our listeners can can probably tell you um, they've never been able to take their parents to Pride. So, and I will say the picture is super sweet. Um, You know, when I saw it, I was just so happy for you. It's, that's a big step forward, right? Like being able to share such a big part of your identity with your parents in in such a place, it is a big, is a big moment. Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, I think about the journey that I've taken with that in terms of just like, you know, a lot of it when I came out, a lot of the questions were, what will people think? And it's very image driven. So to have them years later and us to be able to post on social media, like when I first came out, it was like, don't post anything on social media. Like it was, you know, iterations of that until ultimately they, you know, were, I took a stand for myself, but they were also willing to meet me there too. And so it it just was a really sweet and beautiful experience. And I think the Asian American experience and bringing into the LGBTQ experience on top of that is something that I want to explore with this podcast, obviously, just from my own backgrounds. But I think for you know this month's guest we invited Yan Tan who is a filmmaker here based in Austin who also identifies uh, as part of the queer community and yeah i'm just really excited to be able to to hear his journey and how that's kind of resonated with him or or shown up for him 
But first, before we get into his bio, I'm curious, Dandra, for you, like your experience with the queer community and how's that? Because you have a lot of gay friends too. Like what was, how's that shown up for you? Understanding that, you know, you are a straight woman, but... Yeah, no, I I have attended Pride a few. I've never actually attended the one in Austin. I've attended the one in, in Houston, and it's really big there. And over the year, it has changed. It's used to be in the Montrose district, really historic district with deep roots and ties to the LGBTQ community in Houston. And then it recently has moved over to downtown. And just kind of seeing the difference in those experiences is really interesting because it felt, I don't know, maybe this is just me, but it felt a little bit more authentic when it was in the Montrose district and they moved it downtown and a lot of corporations are sponsoring and it feels a bit like virtue signaling. I don't know if you feel that and if it's the same in, in Austin, but in Houston, it's very, very large, but you see these large corporations supporting and they're out there and then you see some of their C-suite maybe supporting uh, organizations that don't quite align. So I always have a hard time with Pride Month because it is such a joyous moment that I can share with, with my friends who are in the community. And it's such a wonderful thing. But at the same time, yeah, you see yeah. a lot of people posting their pictures and throwing these dollars around and, and sponsoring and making sure that they have their name, a lot of oil and gas, obviously in Houston. And then turn around so I always feel a conflict around those things yeah no I'm glad you you called that out and named that because here's the thing with that right like the the highlight of the 2019 pride parade like yeah I, you know I've been to a couple of the, the parades over the years and after a while it's it is what it is you know but I think on the one hand as part of the community I completely agree and I'm just like yeah some of it just feels like virtue signaling but on the other hand it's like oh my parents are seeing these large corporations and they don't you know they're not thinking as into that as we are but they're like oh wow they have the back like Apple has like so many people here and like da 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 you know and so they're like there's city officials and da 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 and so like oh this is great so it's kind of a dual-edged thing we want this visibility we want this support but it also has to be authentic support and I think that's the second piece of it that maybe is starting to get lost with pride month a little bit and even I see like a reclamation from the queer community and the LGBTQ plus community of owning it again or trying to to take ownership over that again so I hope that that pattern continues it's definitely a, a fine balance a little bit and I'm kind of more on the other side of radical you know taking it back in ownership and, and type yeah, of no, absolutely I think we have to be continuously critical of it right it's we have the greenwashing the rainbow washing and the you know I it irks me so much when I'm on LinkedIn and when it's pride month every single corporation has their you know logos changed for that month and then as soon as that month is over done and it's it, it irks me to a degree where it's like you do this because you want to basically say, hey, yeah, of course, we're inclusive and all these things. And then again, in the, in the yeah. background, maybe supporting other activities. So um, it's it's good to see. But at the same time, is are we followed by action? And so, yeah, just staying, I think, putting that pressure on is important. So Similar to like the Asian American Heritage Month and, and just like yeah. all of the months that have a special highlight right but like all of our identity this is 365 I'm not just gay in June and August I'm like gay (laughs) 
all year. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And the same with like International Women's Month. It's like, you're not just a woman in March. So, but let's get into a little bit more about Yen and his bio. Yeah, Yen was is such an amazing kind of um, filmmaker here and presence in, in Austin. So we're super excited to have him. Yen Tan is a Malaysian-born writer, director, and graphic artist. He premiered the critically acclaimed Pit Stop at Sundance 2013. It was nominated for a John Cassavetes Award at the 2014 Film Independent Spirit Awards. Yen also co-directed Until We Could in 2014 with David Lowry and Addie winning PSA for Freedom to Marry that was narrated by Robin Wright and Ben Foster. His New York Times critic pick feature 1985 premiered at South by Southwest in 2018 and was inspired by his short of the week of the same title. Yen has been a fellow of the Austin Film Society's Artist Intensive, IFP's Film Week, and Film Independence Fast Tracks, he was named one of the Out Magazine's Out 100 of 2018. Yen is based in Austin, where he also works as an award-winning key art designer for independent films and documentaries. An impressive, impressive, impressive human being. Super excited to bring this conversation to our listeners this month. And, you know, let's dive in. Well, I am very excited to welcome our guest this month, Yan Tan. You've heard a little bit about him through Sandra, but here we have him live with us. And so, Yan, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on with us. We usually like to get to know you a little bit just through a rapid fire of sharing your ethnicities, your pronouns, how long you've lived in Austin, what you do for work, and any other identities you'd like to share with us. I am Yan Tan. I am Chinese American. I was born and raised in Malaysia. I have lived in Austin since 2011, and my pronouns is he, him, his. I would say, I mean, I'm a, I can, I'm a filmmaker, and I'm also a, a graphic artist, mostly in the graphic design realm in the film world. Awesome. Let's just jump in. An interesting part about the Asian American experience sometimes is understanding how we got here. Mm -hmm. um, and to the state specifically. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit more context as to how your family or you made the journey from Malaysia to the States. Yeah. So I'm the only person in my family who's here in the state because they're all still in Asia or Malaysia. I came here as a college transfer student in the mid to late 90s. And I went to a, a school called Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. And then I was a major in journalism, in advertising specifically, and I graduated from Drake. And then my the first job I got was in Dallas, and I was pretty much in the advertising copywriting world for like more than a decade after that. And that's how I ended up in, in Texas. And I lived in Dallas for like about 12, 13 years before, before I decided to move to Austin. Thanks for sharing that. I'd love to understand how did you decide to leave Dallas and move to Austin? Yeah. When I lived in Dallas, you know, I visited Austin several times. And I think when I started to sort of make films on the side during nights and weekends uh, in Dallas, my sort of first exposure to Austin was South by Southwest. And I started attending South by Southwest. And then my film starting playing at a festival. And then I just sort of met 
people in Austin very quickly from the festival. And I just sort of got the sense that, oh, like Austin seems like kind of like has this this cultural artistic sort of component going on that I found that was kind of lacking in Dallas. I mean, don't want, even though I had in my own community in Dallas too, but there was something about Austin that I found really appealing. And then so when I was working in Dallas and I was pretty much in the corporate full-time job sort of world for more than a decade, towards the end, I just started feeling really burnt out, just like working in like corporate America. And then I was just like the sense of not feeling like the work-life balance wasn't quite there. And I was always tr was trying to figure out if there was a way I could work for myself and sort of like have my own schedule. And sort of like going leaving leaving for Austin was so, sort of like part of the reason of like, once I did that, it was almost like I had to, there was like no turning back. Meaning if I moved to Austin, I wasn't going to look for another full-time job. I was just going to figure out how to freelance and then try to make art on the side at the same time. I want to hear a little bit more too about your experience in Iowa. Like, yeah. was that like the, so when you first arrived to the States, it was for Drake College? Yes. Yeah. And, right. And yeah. So was that a whiplash for you? Was that, what was that experience in terms of just cultural adapting yeah. into the States and just, I, I don't imagine Iowa's very diverse, but <laughs> you tell me. I don't know. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, it was kind of funny because like, I think Drake at that time, they have an international students association and part of like what the association is trying to do is to try to get more international students to attend Drake. And the way they, they did that is that they were offering very sort of generous financial aid packages to international students. And I think for my parents also, Iowa was appealing to them because it seemed safe. It seemed like this is like Midwest it didn't have all the sort of like the the kind of stereotypes they were constantly hearing from the news in terms of like being someplace a little bit like a bigger city that's more urban or stuff. They keep hearing all these like drive-by shooting and crime and all this kind of stuff. And they just somehow equate that to it's not safe to be in a big city in America. And so Iowa to them seemed very safe. And then so when I, when I arrived at, at Drake, I mean, it was definitely very apparent that like, it was a very overwhelmingly white campus. And not only what it was white, but it was also very Greek life oriented. And there was a lot of fraternities and sororities. And then the whole thing was just kind of like, if you're like a, a regular white kid who was attending the school, it was kind of like, that was the easiest gateway to start making friends and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, when I arrived there, I sort of realized, oh yeah, I'm like really much in a minority of like what was happening. And so, Honestly, I still didn't really have a hard time because I felt like at that time, I was consciously telling myself that if I was going to come to America, uh, I was going to have the American experience. And it was a very conscious decision. And because, because I felt like there was like two paths for an international student arriving at Drake at that time, you can start off by saying that you just want to stay within your community. You just want to hang out with other international students. And they literally have a dorm on campus where it's like predominantly international students stay in that dorm. So you can pick that dorm or you can pick six of the other, other dorms that are all like regular American dorms. And so I asked to be placed in any of the American dorms. I was essentially, I was being placed in like the most party 
heavy dorm. My floor was so party driven. And there was also a lot of African-American students in that floor. So it was like, for me, it was like immediately I just got dropped into that version of the American experience. And it was just like, it was kind of like really mind-blowing because in, in, in hindsight, it was kind of like the kind of place that my parents would be scared to put me into, right? Going by their sort of like very limited stereotypical experience of you know, like just they also have a very specific perception of what African-Americans were like that was like completely problematic. So for, for me to actually be placed on the floor where there's a lot of African-American kids and then there's me and then somehow I managed to get along with everyone and everyone like really loved me and I just like love all of them. It was like really eye-opening, you know, I felt like that was like a really great experience. But it was just like immediately, it was just one of those, I had to get over culture shock and feeling the sense of figuring out all the slang and how to speak like an American, I kind of had to figure that out really fast. Because, I mean, everyone around me was like willing to teach me, but at the same time, they were not going to sanitize their lifestyles for me, right? I mean, so everyone around me was always like having sex and my roommate was very promiscuous. I would walk, like I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would turn over and he would be like having sex with some random girl. I was always constantly seeing all these things that I was like, okay, you got to get used to this. This is just the way this is going to be that the whole full NC-17 experience that you cannot, you know, be like prudish about. And I think, I think ultimately it was good for me because I, okay, well, this is it. This is, this is the full American experience for me. <laughs> Were there any standout moments where you felt you, that was you leaning in? Obviously, you were kind of on the party floor yeah. and experiencing probably what we typically think is an American college experience, but I'd love to know if you have any specific examples. I don't know. I, I felt like I was very much a sponge in those college years, and I didn't, I didn't really sort of, you know, it was, it was more, more about me absorbing that experience and understanding where they were coming from. Yeah. Dang. That's such a unique experience and story. I'm wrapping my head around it because I know you said you were a little bit of a sponge, but was identity, that conversation, a thing in Malaysia before you came over? And then two, like when you came to the States, when did you start thinking about your identity, if at all, another way, you know? I mean, I, I, I think there was definitely, I mean, there was awareness of identity, you know? But I think there was no critical thinking component because I feel like at that time, we weren't having those kind of conversations, right? I mean, there was definitely sort of like racism from the perspective of like how African-Americans was just like they had that specific experience. And I understood that, but I don't think we were ever going beyond like talking about racism towards other communities right it was very much like at that time i felt like it was very much a black and white sort of thing and asian american community i didn't think of it in, in terms of okay what what was what was that experience like and do you know that wasn't that wasn't something i completely knew about until way later you know maybe after college i mean i think i think the other component that was interesting too and maybe this is part of why I felt I have to be a sponge in college was because I was mostly closeted in college as 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 a queer man and and I think 
it was it was sort of very easy for me to take the I'll stay in the background sort of route because it was safer. And I didn't even feel like on my floor, I, I just remember there was so much homophobia too on just in my college in general. It was so relentless that I felt like, oh yeah, I'm not going to come out. And even with the gay kids who were in school that everyone knew that they were gay, they were always being seen as not people you want to be around. So I felt like it was very negative and I just didn't want to be a part of that at all. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. We could go two routes here because I want to to get into uh, understanding a little bit more how that like queer experience starts showing up in your life a little bit too. But well, what came first, I guess? When did you start thinking about your identities a little Mm -hmm. bit more in terms of like, when did you feel, if at all, part of the Asian American community and, and then recognizing that even though you, you know, came to the States as an international student, now you're potentially being lumped into this larger community. Mm -hmm. Uh, When did that kind of happen for you, if at all? I I would characterize the college years, the Asian, the Asian identity, the Asian sort of immigrant identity was very basic, meaning I, I saw myself as an Asian person on campus. But there wasn't any sort of, again, there wasn't any deep critical thinking about that in terms of what was my Asian experience in America at that time. Because I felt this was a predominantly white campus, so therefore anyone who was not a white person or a heterosexual white person on that campus was very much, oh, we're not even part of the conversation at all. And nobody's even at a point where they could have those kind of conversations. So I'm just not going to have that conversation. I think I managed to sort of put a lid on it during the college years. And thankfully, one of my best friends uh, was an international student and he was on a full ride scholarship for, for the school because he was playing tennis for them. And he was biracial, he was half black and white, but he was seen as an Australian because his accent was an Australian accent in English. And it was very interesting to see how Americans totally embrace him differently than the rest of international students who had accents that were heard as not as what's the way to put it where it's kind of like there's the accents that make us feel like you're elevated and there are accents that make us look look at you as oh you're not there (laughs) you're not quite like us in a negative way so australian accents english uk accents are considered classier right so i think it was interesting to see how my australian best friend was received by the white people on campus versus me right and i think the good thing about my friend is that he managed to because of our friendship he managed to get me into places that i wouldn't be able to get into by myself you know, because he was just very much like, he's my friend. So he's coming to this party with me sort of thing. And I think I was really lucky in that, in in that respects. And I was also luckier when in our senior year, basically he came out as gay and he pretty much told all his friends about it, including me, you know, and I was so surprised that he was gay because I felt like he put on that whole jock straight jock thing so convincingly that whole time 
that by the time you came out, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is insane. Because I was also thinking to myself, should I tell him that I'm gay? Because it's like, he came out already, so it's safe to tell him. And so because he came out, I came out really fast after that in our senior year. And I think that's when the identity thing didn't, didn't become like this Asian thing anymore. It was about my last year in college. I was going to go back to Malaysia after that. So I'm going to have the gay experience with my best friend. Um, so that was a really interesting kind of story there that you shared with us, Yen, about your best friends and he finally coming out to you your senior year of college. I'd love to know if you're comfortable sharing with our audience how that maybe influenced how you were getting ready to maybe come out or kind of share. You know, did you then, you mentioned you kind of quickly after that mm -hmm. came out your best friend, but can we can we take a little bit further into that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think my coming out experience, honestly, was very positive. And I, I feel like experiencing that with my best friend, he was kind of like a, a mentor conduit where he's already been out for a while when he lived in Australia. So coming to America for him, he had to figure out what is his safe space and the people who's going to be okay with that. And once he sort of locked that in, then he came out to them knowing that there wasn't going to be any negative stuff once he got that secured. And I think that was a really smart strategy on his part. And I was kind of like the, I just benefited from that setup because I also already knew all those people in his space. So then I was in, immediately just sort of lumped into that group very quickly. And it just felt like, okay, everyone was cool and nobody was going to give us a hard time over this. And so, so honestly, it was really wonderful because I, I felt like I didn't have to go through all that really awkward stuff of, of coming out. I definitely stumbled here and there, but it wasn't, it wasn't anything that was, I don't know, traumatizing, you know, because I felt he's already made his mistakes before. So he was very much teaching me through it. And I think very kind of him to sort of, for me to sort of be out under his wing and it felt very safe and positive. Yeah, that's. Really sweet to hear that you had this, yeah, mentor figure to be able to mm -hmm. help you through that process. Was your approach a similar approach where you told a, a smaller group of people mm -hmm. that you felt safe with first? Yeah. yeah. How did that evolve? Yeah, share a little bit. Yeah. Whatever you want to share about that senior year of like Yen's out and yeah, know. and I mean, I, I mean, I was, I was still, like. we, we were still out in a way that was very specific. I felt like we we went out, and when we came back to school, it was very much we weren't super public about it either, right? Because I know some of the some of the gay students on campus were a lot more visible in terms of what they were wearing, what kind they were stuff they were putting on the doors of their dorm, whether it's a rainbow flag and all that kind of stuff. And I, I think me and my friend kind of didn't do that. And I think, I, I don't know if that was in order to sort of not have to be seen in that way, because I think at that time, being out on campus was not something that anyone aspired to be. It was just, you don't have to be that public about it. You can be just share with your friends and just just keep it at that and i think that's kind of like the way we live at that time but i think i think more importantly it sort of helped me 
come up to my parents a lot faster because I already came out in college. And so when it came to attend my graduation, I chose to tell my dad first. And then I was going to tell my mom, except my dad, when I came out to him, my dad said, do not tell mom. So I didn't tell her until a few years after I graduated and I lived in Dallas. And then she came to visit me in Dallas at one time. And then I just decided to tell her at that time. But it didn't happen until like two or three years after I graduated. And are you, how was that conversation? Or I, I'm curious, um, like you told your dad, I mm -hmm. how did he react or take it? And then understanding that, yeah, he gave that caveat. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like that those in-between years of mm -hmm. half coming out can be really challenging or it can right, show right. up in different ways. I'm curious what that journey was like for you before. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think in that sense, it was also atypical in that my dad was not he didn't really struggle with it. He didn't say anything negative. He just sort of accepted it in his own way. And maybe maybe the pushback was that he never really talked about it with me since I came out to him. You know, it was just kind of like, okay, you just gave me this detail and I'm just going to sweep it under the rug because we don't really have to talk about that. So I think that was the way he handled it. And I was okay with that. And so with my mom, it was more different because I think we were always very close and I think she was a lot more emotional about it after I came out to her. And, and I think it was kind of like this, this sort of like perfect storm of she came to visit me and we were kind of like stuck in the same place, living in the same apartment. And it wasn't like she could just leave. She was going to be with me for at least a month in America. And so this idea of having to be in close quarters after I tell her something that's big, she had to deal with it very quickly. And there was definitely some negative stuff that came up, but it wasn't anything. I never felt like she was going to sever ties with me, which was always my fear. But I, I never felt like she was going to do that. And so it was just more like a lot of, she just said a lot of screwed up things to me in as part of her lashing out. But it wasn't anything that I felt or relationship was in danger. So in that sense, I think, I mean, my parents were ultimately accepted me in their own ways. And maybe it's not in a way where they're going to join PFLAC or anything like that. They were just kind of, okay, well, that's that, you know, we're not going to challenge you or we're not going to threaten you with anything. Kind of fast forwarding to your film journey and mm -hmm. making movies and specifically some of the films that you maybe started your career off with. I wonder when you started to share your work with them, obviously mm -hmm. your identity came more into play. So thinking about Pit Stop and it's a film about like two gay men in a small town in Texas. Mm -hmm. So obviously your identities had a part to play into some yeah. of that you took part in how did you also share your work and your profession with your parents then um i i mean that's like a really interesting part of it because okay that so so there's another layer of context that is needed here which is for them their understanding of what independent cinema is in america is there's no understanding of that context so for them when you talk about movies, they are thinking about whatever blockbuster that's playing in movie theaters and all the big films that they know about, right? With big movie stars and so forth, both 
in America and also in Asia. And I was not making those kind of films at all. So this idea of me telling them that I was just making films with very little money, with no budget and with limited resources, they were just kind of like, oh, that's a hobby, right? That's not a real thing that you're pursuing. You're just doing it on the side. And so for me, I was doing it on the side. It was very much like a nice and weekend sort of thing. And then I think Pit Stop, it was the thing that got into Sundance. It premiered at Sundance. And then I just sort of remember a lot of my friends who are filmmakers, when their films get into Sundance and they call up their parents, it's like announcing that they're getting engaged or their parents knew what Sundance was. And my parents didn't know what Sundance was. So I felt like, oh, I can't call them and share this news and have them react to it like I won the lottery. I just remember telling my parents, I was like, yeah, so I got into this festival and it's a really big deal. And then my mom was just kind of like, why is it in Utah? Was her first question. If it's a big festival, why is it in this place I've never heard of in this state? And so... It was only when they started reading up about it, then they realized, oh, this is like a big deal. And then they started thinking, oh, wow, movies get sold on millions of dollars. This is your movies going to sell, get sold for millions of dollars. Are you hanging out with that kid who plays Harry Potter because he has a film plane? It was just like suddenly gravitating towards being like the hot shot at a festival. And it's again, it, there's no way I was going to explain how that works to them. It was just like this understanding of, festivals and all this kind of stuff that I was just not going to get into it with them. But ultimately, I think for them, it was, oh, somebody actually thinks what you're doing is worthwhile for them to like put it in a platform for people to look at. Ultimately, that was what playing at Sundance meant to them at the end. And I think that's when they realized we don't really understand what you do, nor are you making the kind of films that we would watch. <laughs> But it's nice that you have an audience anyway. I think that for them was enough. <laughs> yeah, it kind of reminds me when, when you were, obviously you were kind of pursuing film and it didn't really resonate what you were doing until you said NBC and your yeah. parents were like, oh, we kind of know what NBC yeah. is. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. Honestly, I mean, when you were sharing that story, yeah, and like I do have some tears because I think that's... It's, there's something bittersweet yeah. for those who are listening Sundance obviously is like a very huge deal so kudos to you right and it's like you telling the story of your other filmmaker friends who can shortcut into what yeah. that means with their parents is a bittersweet thing where you want the uh, yeah you, like the pride and like the honor and all that type of stuff that comes from your parents to be able to come down to you when you share this big right. news but right you're immediately having to think in your head, how do I explain the weight of what this actually right, is right. so that they can understand it so that they can then be yeah. proud and happy. So yeah, right. and, and, and usually it's just with shortcuts to Harry Potter and yeah. NBC, these mainstream <laughs> things. That's not quite exactly what it is, but it's close enough, I guess. So right, if right. that'll help them get to where they need to get to understand, then I, I don't know if that's a specific Asian American experience, but I do find that it's similar to a lot of people that I've talked about who are Asian American mm -hmm. too, um, and and other minority groups too, wh whose parents maybe don't have access to the type of that sphere of the industry or business or whatever. You know, it's just not part of their reality, which makes sense and is understandable, but it's still a little bittersweet. So I appreciate you sharing that. 
you, you mentioned maybe after college, you more thought about what it meant to be Asian American, and especially maybe after getting your immigration status and whatnot. Was there ever where like, okay, your queer identity was at the forefront. So that was something that you were addressing first. And then like mm-hmm. the Asian identity was in the background. Did, was there ever an instance where the Asian identity came forward more mm-hmm. slash it started like, you know, intertwining, you had to confront both of them? I... I have a feeling, you know, this this idea, going back to this idea of being a sponge again, of this thing that I did when I was in college in order to to feel safe because I was not I, I didn't want to register myself as a as a presence in a way that felt people had to be aware of it. So I was very good at being in the background. I think I, I pretty much still do that to this very day. And I think and and again, I, I cannot say exactly that this is good or bad for me from a mental health perspective because I think it has sort of served me both ways, right? For me, the positive thing about being sort of like in a background and like hanging on to this outsider experience is that it's really informed me a lot about human behavior and how people are and having empathy for people in general because I, I know how to look at people. I know how to observe people. And a lot of these things come into storytelling stuff, into film, and how you write characters or how you write stories, you just sort of know what is that perspective is. And I think it's very helpful in that regards. What is not great about it is that I think I tend to hang on to that point of view out of comfort. And I don't, even in scenarios where I feel like, okay, you need to be more assertive and you need to be more present in this particular situation. I feel like I hesitate to do that it still feels like an effort to try to push myself to be forward like that and I know exactly in in different situations both career-wise especially where when I do that it's it didn't help me because one element that I I always fail to acknowledge is that people are looking at you as an Asian man right in my case they're looking at me as a gay Asian man and that comes with all this preconceived notions, right? I'm not seen as threatening, first of all, which means I'm not seen as an aggressive person or an assertive person. So it's easy for people to just sort of ignore me. It's easy for people to sort of not treat me like I'm a person of importance or whatever. It's very easy for people to minimize me because of physically what what I represent to them. If I do anything that is playing into the minimization, if I don't speak up as much, if I'm not as assertive, then I am just meeting the expectations of who I am, which reinforces how they treat me, how they, if they if they're in the positions of saying, oh, we need to figure out if we want to promote Yen, we need to figure out if Yen is in capable of to be in a position of power. It's going to change all of that because if I'm meeting their expectations of the kind of person I am and I'm not challenging it, then I'm not going to get promoted. And that's exactly what happened to me when I was working in corporate America, where I felt, you know, they always talk about this idea of bamboo ceiling. And I think for me, my bamboo ceiling was honestly, I have to blame myself for it because I definitely played into the stereotypes because I felt more comfortable being in that position. Thank you so much for going there and, and sharing that with us. I know it's, I appreciate your vulnerability around that. I 
well yes as a fellow gay asian man as yeah. well there's <laughs> that uh invisibility on on both right it hits on both fronts right in the in the lgbtq community and then yeah. also in just society at large right, right. Of the American perspective of what an Asian man represents and the types of qualities and traits he has. And then you layer being gay on top of that. And then you're also kind of battling a little bit of those expectations within the LGBTQ community as well, too. Mm -hmm. um, so it definitely is this dual mind game that you're constantly having to navigate. And it's really interesting to hear your experience with that. And I appreciate you sharing, just like Sandra was saying, because I go back and forth. You know, sometimes I am a lot more assertive about it. And I think right. I try to call it out. This podcast is like one example of me trying to call it out a mm -hmm. little bit in terms of like the Asian American experience is so unique and different. There's not one right way to be Asian American, but it does manifest for us in different ways, how we decide to navigate it in different ways. And so I don't know, I, I, I appreciate you sharing just where you're at with it up front. You kind of mentioned how it inspires some of the writing and character building and stories that you tell. Can you share a little bit more about that? And um, twofold, I guess, what inspired you to get into filmmaking in general? And then how has your experiences kind of shaped the types of projects that you like to do, yeah. you like to tell? I mean, I think, I think ultimately just filmmaking ultimately is a form of storytelling for me. And I think storytelling is, is, is something that has been happening in my family for a long time. Both my parents are also storytellers in the sense that they are not writers, but they are academic people who read a lot of literature. So the, it really informs the way they tell stories to their children. Like I remember all the stories my parents told me growing up, and they were always expressed to me in a very sort of theatrical way of knowing how to construct a narrative out of an incident and being able to dramatize different moments. So when I hear those stories, and it could be some incident that happened to them when they went to the market, I'm hearing that as an actual story with three acts. And I think they were able to do that in, in a very unconscious way. And I think I realized there's a certain kind of power to that and able to sort of retell a story like that. So I think for me, it's ultimately, I look at my relationship with my art, whether it's design or making films. And I think ultimately the thing that I always want to get out from the process is this idea of, understanding things better. If there are things in my life that I still have hard time understanding, I feel like if I channel it into the art, what comes out on the other end is going to be more clear to me than if I would just to deal with my issues directly. Meaning I usually would be going through something and then I would think, okay, write about these feelings that you have and it's transplanted into this fictional character and they're going through this whole thing in the movie what happens to them at the end. And I sort of look at what happens to them at the end as a takeaway of, oh, this is what they have arrived at after, after going through all of that. So maybe there is something from that that you can apply to your own life. That's ultimately the draw for me, being able to sort of use art as a medium to process your feelings and a lot of things in your life that are often not very clear what it means. And I think art can give you a lot of clarity in that way. Yeah, absolutely. I love the way that you talk through your process there. 
Um, are there any particular projects or films that you are really proud of or you're interested in making in the future that you want to share with us? Yeah. When I started making films back in like 2008 or whatever, I felt like this idea of Asian American storytelling and Asian American representation on camera was not really there yet. But now I think it's changed and I feel a bit more sort of like, I don't have to feel awkward about saying, oh, I want to write about an Asian character that is going through an experience like mine. Like I don't have to filter it through the white lens anymore. And that's really nice in a way, you know, because now I can be like, oh yeah, you can actually write someone who's like yourself and it doesn't have to be something else to check off some box for the money people or whatever. So I think in that sense, since the pandemic, I feel like I've been trying to craft stories in that space more than ever before. Even having having that said, I think I think there's still a lot of challenges that I still don't know how to navigate around. Meaning something I learned very quickly in the past year in terms of just how Hollywood is, is that it's ultimately a business. And people can talk about the importance of representation all day long. But when money is in the picture, representation has to exist in a very specific way for them that is digestible and profitable. Yeah, through so much of what you're saying, I know Min and I are just holding our claps because <laughs> we are 100%. And we are so cheering you on, Yen. Like, we can't wait to see the projects that you create. Yeah. And even the whole Asian representation thing, and, and you know, thinking about the Asian market, Hollywood thinking about the Asian market and what's palatable to them, right. what the Asian Americans are asking for, and what's palatable to that specific experience starts playing a role into like the types of Asian representation that gets made. And that's right, what right. I feel like people who aren't in the community don't really understand that that's where like the business really shines through and that the bottom line like the representation is a cherry on top sure it was a part of it but at the end of the day you know like money talks and so yeah it's, yeah, like, yeah. it's gonna be most profitable for this project so i think two questions what is being Asian American mean to you today? And mm -hmm. then thinking about what does it mean to be a queer Asian American today? Mm -hmm. What does being Asian American mean to me today? I think it means I can actually talk about these things. There was this lack of critical thinking component back when I first came to college about identity. And I think now we can talk about these things and we can sort of have a deeper understanding of what we're all going through. So I think being an Asian American for me means that is a big part of it. Being able to talk about our journey and experiences and being able to talk about it in a way that is meant to be insightful eventually. Yeah, we can talk about trauma. We can talk about all the negative stuff that happened because of our identities. Like I think ultimately it has to lead into some sort of clarity of insight that we can sort of learn from or being enlightened by it. And I think being an Asian American for me today means a lot of it means that this constant search for enlightenment from what we have all been through. And then the queer part, the being a queer Asian American, um, I think it, it definitely is a, a a privilege to say that I don't have to make that distinction as much anymore today. Meaning, 
to me, that's just a very fine line between that separates between the queer Asian American experience versus the Asian American experience. And I think my experience, I feel like nobody has a really hard time with it anymore. Meaning, even with my heterosexual cis Asian American brothers and sisters, they don't talk about queer stuff like in a way that feels like they're turned off by it or whatever or have their specific hangups about it. I don't feel like I've encountered that for a really long time. And I think in that sense, we have made a lot of progress. Awesome. So we we like to end our episodes kind of in, in a lighter tone and yeah. rapid fire. Let us know what comes to mind. So what is your favorite Asian restaurant in Austin? Right now, I would say China Family is a go-to on Airport Boulevard. There's another restaurant that I discovered over the pandemic because they have uh, an Indonesian menu that I think is pretty wonderful. It's uh, Twin Panda on West Palmer. It's a kind of a distance away, but it's worth going there for the Indonesian menu. Amazing. What, is, what was your favorite Asian snack growing up? My favorite Asian snack was also the snack that my parents didn't want me to eat. And they would tell me that if I keep eating that snack, my hair would fall out. It was a ramen noodle snack called Mami, M-A-M-E-E. It kind of has this cookie monster looking like mascot. <laughs> in all its uh, branding and commercial. And I think that's why all the kids got sucked into it. But it's really popular in it, in Malaysia. And I think that was like my favorite snack. And even when I go back to Malaysia now, I still like buy a few packets. And even though they don't taste good anymore, I'm still kind of like, I like the nostalgia feeling it brings when I eat it. <laughs> I just looked it up and it is a cookie monster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll have to share this. Uh, yeah. yeah. And what's your favorite Austin pastime? I have two very good friends who are really big into karaoke. And they basically converted their garage into a karaoke studio. (laughs) That is super impressive now, like in terms of what they have done to it to make it feel like an actual private karaoke VIP experience. I mean, I love going there. You know, I think they they have sessions every now and then and they call the place the Rump, R-U-M-P. I think that's kind of like my current favorite pastime. (laughs) (laughs) So with that being said, obviously you love karaoke. What's your go-to song? Yeah, uh, Celine Dion's It's All Coming Back to Me Now has been kind of like a go-to, you know? Um, Even though I, for me specifically, I think I tend to pick ballads for karaoke and even ballads that I shouldn't be singing because they're too challenging, like Whitney Houston or Mariah Carey stuff. I like challenging myself to see if I can pull it off in my own way. But I, for whatever reasons, I don't know, maybe the pandemic has sort of made me experience a more profound level of sadness that is making me channel all of that into singing ballads. (laughs) You know, their vocal runs are always fun to try to do, even if you can't do them. This coming from like a huge Christina Aguilera fan who just sings a bunch of her songs. Right, which is also hard, yeah. At all, but like... Also, It's All Coming Back to Me is an epic, sweeping story, and it's really fun to sing. So I support you that. Yeah, yeah, and this has been so great. I really appreciate, we both really appreciate you sharing your time with us and and telling us a little bit more about your story. Yeah, we just really appreciate uh, this time with you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for doing this podcast, and thanks for having me on. Wow, that was so much fun and 
obviously we don't know what yen super well, but you know, just so extremely kind, nice, open, uh, really enjoyed that conversation with him. Yeah, for sure. I think about going to Iowa and for that to be his first kind of foray into like the U.S. American culture. I, I just always like, that's your move. That's your next movie. Like your life is your next movie. The other thing that I thought was was really interesting to learn, and I'm really glad that he was sharing, but just his like self-awareness of how he tackles or addresses his identities in terms of whether or not to push back or to be in the background and feel a little bit more safer. Because I've been in that experience too, where it has been really safe to really just like take a step back and not try to engage further. But it's something that I still go back and forth with. And I, like I said earlier, I do try to like go more assertive and and be present in my identities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anybody in the, in the workplace, what resonated was the bamboo ceiling and how do we deal with that? You know, are we going to show up and go, you know what, we're breaking the ceiling or no, do we kind of settle into kind of that role that maybe others perceive us to be in? And so I really appreciated that he was so open about his work and how he views and how he uses that as a lens for the projects that he's involved in. You know, we're we're all a work in progress and really how do we continue to shape our identities and, and take that and present that to others. So um, yeah, and if you're listening, we so appreciate that. And we ended on karaoke, which I'm like, wait, I don't know if I know your karaoke song. What's your go-to karaoke song? So I, fun fact, I absolutely, when he said Celine Dion, like my heart just, that was like the first like American film I was allowed to watch. Well, I wasn't allowed to watch all of it for obvious reasons, but I remember Titanic being such a big deal when it came out and Celine Dion was like the it girl in my mind, but I was like, what, eight eight or nine years old telling people that Celine Dion was my favorite singer. I remember in, um, I think it was third or fourth grade, like everybody went around, they're like, what's your favorite singer? And everyone's like, Britney Spears. And I was like, Celine Dion. (laughs) So anything Celine Dion or Spice Girls, go-to songs. What are yours? Mm. Uh, Celine Dion's a good one. She was actually probably my first diva before I knew that I loved divas, to be honest. In the same way, my heart will go on. I remember watching on VH1's Top 10 Countdown, like that video, and she's like epic on that boat. And I I was like, oh, I I think I'm gay too. But that that came later. My go-to song, I don't know, to be honest, it changes. Sometimes I do Survivor by Destiny's Child. Sometimes I do some Christina. Other times I think it's what's really fun is to do like yellow card or like pop punk. Because it's like easy. You don't really have to have vocal talent, but you can still hit those notes because you're like screaming and it's part of the emotion and it's usually a crowd pleaser. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. I I like to get in my feels with a little bit dashboard confessional, just getting so emotional. But yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, I hope you all all enjoyed this episode as much as we did. I think hearing Yen's experience, again, just reiterates that there's not one right way to be Asian American, to be queer in this world. And so we just really appreciate him sharing that. And we'll see you on the other side next month. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye.